The following is a podcast about trail running. And feelings. Welcome to Trail Emotion. My name is Kelsey Hogan, and I'm here with my partner in running and life, Adam Fernell. When we met, Kelsey had already been running ultramarathons for three years, and I didn't know that they existed. I ran only on the road and often grudgingly for the purpose of my career in recreational sports. But it wasn't long before you were out on the trails, taking pictures, eating snacks, enjoying the time out in nature, and loving everything about running on trails for hours at a time. It might not have been quite that smooth, but after I decided to pace you at the Tahoe 200, a 200-mile race around Lake Tahoe, it wasn't long before I was careening downhill towards the trail running community. Now we both run ultramarathons, and trail running is never far from our minds. I like to say that ultra running has a way of reducing the space between me and my emotions. That's why trail emotion is about more than just running. It's about the emotions that we meet along the trail. Sometimes I'm surprised about the parts of me that I meet along the way. We're making this podcast because we want to explore the spaces between ultra running, ourselves, and our emotions. We're going to do it by talking with ultra runners and about ultra marathons but also by talking to people who don't think of themselves as runners at all. Because we believe that we're all on trails to somewhere, running ultras of our own, and that ultra running can teach us something about how to climb the mountains we're each facing in our own lives. But before we do that, we have another race to run and interviews to record. So while we get ready to launch episode one of Trail Emotion, we want to share something that gives you a taste of how we talk when we talk about running. Last summer, we both ran races at Quebec Megatrail, a trail running festival just outside of Beaupre, Quebec at Mont Saint-Anne, and took some time to interview each other about our experiences. We're about to head back to run the 100 miler at Quebec Megatrail, so we thought that it was time to get our experiences about the race last year out into the world. In this episode, you'll hear Kelsey interview me about my experience in the 110 kilometer race. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode already, you can listen to that to hear me interview Kelsey about her experience in the 100-mile race. We hope that these episodes are useful for runners, crew members, and anyone who's curious about what it feels like to take on an ultramarathon. We're grateful to be able to run these races and hope that our experiences can offer something to you, even if you don't feel like running is in your future. Okay, so until we talk to you again, Enjoy our two-part series about last year's Quebec Mega Trail. Hello, Adam. Hello, Kelsey. <laughs> Thank you for joining me here today in our office. It's very lovely to have you and I'm looking forward to talking with you. What are we going to talk about today? One can only hope that we will talk about running. Oh, I hope we always talk about running. Running is fun to talk about. I was thinking I would ask you about your time at Quebec Mega Trail this re weekend. Before we talk about getting started, and we get started with talking about the start of the race, why don't we uh, first chat about why you wanted to do this race? What put this particular race event on your calendar? This particular race event was on my calendar because a couple of years ago, I guess three years ago now, you ran the 100 
kilometer version of this race. It was my first ultra experience to come and crew you at that race. And so it was kind of ground zero of my ultra life. So really that was the main reason it got on my schedule. Beyond that, as with most things, the reason that anything at all gets on my ultra schedule is because you put it there. (laughs) So that's why I started with this race. And before Quebec Mega Trail, before this past weekend, that time that you came to crew me at the race was your first intro to ultras. Tell us a bit about your running experience and your, your background leading up to running ultras. How did you get here? My running experience leading up to ultras, I would describe as being borderline non-existent, but I think that you might describe it a different way. If I'm being truly honest about what it is, it started in elementary school on the cross-country team at John Dearness Public School in London, Ontario. We used to run through the bog. So as I think about it now, we used to run on trails. Mm. (sighs) Imagine. And uh, I ran cross country very, very um, innocuously, like without fanfare, without high positioning, without really a lot of great skill. And uh, from then on, running really was just something that I did so that I could do other things reasonably well. And to be honest, something that I probably did because I figured it was part of a healthy lifestyle and would um, help me to maintain my svelte figure then since then you have run an ultra before this race right and i think i guess it probably is worth saying i'd run a half marathon distance uh, a couple of times um, prior to meeting you i guess like the other thing that you could say in regards to my running is that i often did it as a way to discover new places and a way to ground myself inside of experiences that were kind of uncomfortable for me, or at least experiences that were uncomfortable because they were new. I used to always make a point of running whenever I went away to a new place. I remember running in Belgium. I ran up north um, in a community called Fort Hope when I was there. And I think I did it as a way to have a bit of alone time and maybe also a bit of a way to arrive somewhere in a way that I wouldn't have been able to arrive if I had stuck with the group within the square footage that we were going to traverse while walking. I think it's really such a neat way to explore so many new places. And you, in the time that I've known you now, have now run more ultra events than, I guess, half marathon running events. So it's neat to see you grow into an ultra runner or a trail runner. Um, And you've always been a runner in a lot of ways. So take me to uh, your training for this race. How did you start to prepare for this run once you'd signed up for it? Grudgingly. (laughs) That's how I started training for it. Um, It takes me a while to carve out the space in my schedule and in my life because I'm oh so busy um, for running. And so I think the grudging part of it was that I started running again fairly regularly just by doing some shorter stuff on the road, Um, 6K runs to the Citadel in Halifax and back um, and doing those reasonably quickly. Um, And then from then on, I just kind of followed your lead. 
whenever you were heading out or when I knew that it was time for you to start to train, I kind of glommed on to whatever you were going to do and then probably added my own flavor to that. Um, I don't know, to that training pattern. And so as we talked about what we were going to do today, I would participate in those conversations and groan and grumble and roll my eyes and sigh and stuff like that. And in that way, contribute my own input to whatever it was that we were going to do to train for this upcoming ultra. I think I noticed a distinct difference to about a month before this race, we did the Rockwood 50k in St. John, New Brunswick. And after that, we knew we had sort of a month to recover and prepare for this race. And you were really big on when we were going out, pushing to go out on trails. Yes, that's very true. After running Rockwood, I would say that I felt that it was extremely important for my survival and for my chances of completing the mega trail race that we spend a lot of time on trails. And that basically just came from Rockwood being a challenge. It wasn't necessarily harder than I expected it to be, but it was certainly as difficult as it should have been. And what that meant for me was that um, I wasn't able to run the entire 50K. I hiked part of the 50K. I had moments of feeling like that run was very difficult. And maybe there was this little part of me that was thinking that I wouldn't feel that way, that maybe I would discover that, in fact, I could run that entire 50K at Rockwood. And so it was... Like a wake-up call, I guess, would be sort of the cliche way to say it. Um, and I think that it's probably the accurate way to say it. It was like a bit of like a smack upside the head or a gentle pat on the head to say like, go and run some trails, get used to getting your feet wet, get used to climbing things that aren't super stable, get used to running down things that have roots and rocks and stones and stuff like that. And I think like do that not only because physically it will be necessary for you or in this case me to be ready for that, but mentally you need to be ready for that kind of an experience because it just is a different mental experience to run that kind of terrain. What are the differences that you're thinking about when you're running on trail compared to running on roads? A lot more thinking for me anyway, when it comes to running on trail, a lot more thinking about my actual movement and the experience of that movement in my body, where to put your feet, what line to take. And I do sometimes feel a tiny bit like a skier when I'm running trail, um, thinking about like, what's the best way to navigate this particular part of a, of, of a course or of a, of a trail. That's that's like probably the main thing. Like it's just busier. Everything is busier, I find, on on trail. And and maybe I, I sometimes wonder if I'm in a big camp or a small camp when I say that, because I think sometimes I hear trail described as this expansive, wonderful, open place where you just get to let your mind go free and and you get to kind of revel in nature and all this sort of stuff. And that's true to an extent. But I think at the stage I'm at in my running, it's actually like quite uh, dense, the experience of running trail. And so I don't necessarily find it to be relaxing at this stage. A good bit of access road or a good bit of 
residential street is like a welcome thing uh, for me when I'm in the middle of a trail race, because that is that moment where I can kind of like look up and look around and like let myself just kind of like sink in. I haven't, I mean, it's probably unfair to say I haven't come to the point where I'm able to do that on trail or technical trail, but I do think it happens less that like disassociative place is less accessible to me when running among roots and rocks and things like that, which I guess I should be grateful for, right? Because it's interesting. I, I feel that too, like a very intense focus that it takes to be able to move over the trails and to be able to keep an eye on what it is that you're running on the whole time. So it makes a lot of sense what you're describing to me. Take us to Mont St. Anne. How did we get there? Um, what was it like when you arrived? What were you thinking? What were you focusing on uh, before the race? So we set off for Mont St. Anne from Halifax and drove as far as Fredericton and stayed the night there at a, at a friend's place and had the worst nightmare. It's a very disturbing nightmare. And my body went into some sort of a um, like fight or flight or freeze and clenched up to protect me around that experience of that nightmare. And honestly, like when I tried to like hoist myself out of bed the way I normally would in the morning, I went, oh, geez, I can't do that. That was, I guess, two and a half days before the start of the race or one and a half days before the start of the race. And so that was quite concerning to me. So I spent the whole day kind of like, I don't want to say repressing that, but certainly like compartmentalizing this experience that was happening in my upper back and hoping that it was going to go away and doing my best not to uh, clench up around it and make it worse. After that, we met up with your parents and had the most lovely van ride to a, to a campsite. It truly was a luxurious thing to be able to sit in the back of a camper van and get driven to your sporting event. I mean, that, if that isn't the dream, I'm not sure what is. So the next night, we arrived at Republic Provincial Park mm -hmm. in New Brunswick, just near Edmonston. We pulled up to our campsite and like, okay, I didn't grow up camping. I'm like into the idea of camping and I feel much more capable of camping now. Like I can participate in setting up a tent and like I can build a fire and I've done it a bunch of times as an adult. I'm not like a backcountry camper, but I'm capable. However, the night before a race, the night after sleeping funny on your back, it was like not my ideal sleeping location and sort of to top it off, we did not, and this truly is a we, we <laughs> did not bring pillows. And I mean, again, you don't need pillows to camp. I'm very aware of this, but in this particular case where we had like a lot of room in a van, we could have brought some pillows and it would have just yeah. been kind of nice, but we didn't. And so that night I was feeling a certain amount of discomfort already I was mentally trying to clear that discomfort from my body and not focus on it too much. I actually did sleep okay. I slept fine, well enough, but it was, again, just like the, not the most pleasant of experiences, not the most restful of experiences. And so I woke up the next morning, again, not having like 
the full range of motion in my neck that I'm used to having or my back that I'm used to having. So this may sound like I'm complaining and probably I am on some level, but we did set off that following morning for Mont St. Anne and I still really just loved riding in the back of the van and I wasn't feeling like desperate about my condition and my situation, but I think it's fair to say I wasn't feeling like entirely settled either. Yeah. I mean, you do all this prep and planning and you want to arrive at race day in like, you know, the best possible condition that you can. And so there was a few things that just weren't going quite according to your plan or that you couldn't have predicted. And so what did you do with that? Like when we arrived at Monsena and you were still feeling this quite, I, I would say rather significant sensation. And how are you working through that? The answer to that is that I was self-diagnosing the best that I could and starting to do little bits of movement here and there. There's this saying, motion is lotion that I've come to to love and appreciate. And just thinking about bringing like gentle motion to the area that was feeling uncomfortable. For the most part, thinking that I hadn't done any significant damage, but also not really knowing that for sure. And I think the other way that I probably dealt with it was by experimenting with different ways of trotting along in the parking lot to see what it felt like to get my head around what it might feel like to run with that for 110 kilometers. That didn't calm me down very much. There was like this sort of little, you know, jolt that went through my body every time I landed on the ground. So that wasn't feeling super great. And then I think I probably dealt with it also by being just a little like quiet and a little short and what felt like a tiny bit in my head. And then I think one of the like the real turning points for me in dealing with that was asking for some help from somebody who knew something about anything. Um, and I think when I say knew something about anything, I really mean knew something about the body and how it works. And Mark essentially um, invited me to recognize that probably the body was doing something to uh, protect me. It perceived that I needed protection in my sleep. Maybe I didn't but it had perceived that and that basically it was just going to take a little bit of time for that part of the body to release and be retrained to know that there was nothing the matter there. And so he invited me to just find some motions, like some gentle stretches that were reaching that area that were going to reach that area of the body and to do those gently, sort of like, every hour or so for three or four, maybe five minutes up until the time that I ran the race. Did I do that? No, not really. I set an alarm at first to try and remember to do it. And then I just kind of forgot. But like when I kind of thought about it throughout the rest of the day, I did kind of do some just like gentle stretching and gentle movement. And I think more than anything, what Mark's comments allowed me to do was to put my mind at ease and to start focusing on some of the skills that I've been learning to speak calm to my nervous system. And so I was able to do a little bit of that work, some intentional and some a little bit, uh, some just maybe a little bit more uh, casual, just a little bit of like, not just self-talk, but uh, do a bit of breathing, do a bit of light meditation, 
the kind of things that might send messages of calm through to the nervous system and and bring a little bit of relief to that that area that was feeling a little activated. Man, lots to say about that apparently. Mm-hmm. I think it's a uh, it's it's good to know that and to have that sort of tool in your toolbox when you're experiencing those sorts of things before a race because you never know what you're going to be feeling and what you might experience. So. Well, and I think that's something that I've been reflecting on, and I was thinking about this at the time as well. You know, I I am not ancient. I'm very aware of that. I'm 31 whole years, almost 32. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I have an awareness that my body won't always be able to feel perfect when I go into sporting events or athletic events. And I'm probably like nearing the point in my life where I might start to expect that to happen just a little bit more frequently. I think that the idea that so many people go into these events feeling less than perfect is is like a good thing to keep in mind uh, for me when I do future events and for other people when they're getting ready for their own events because like what are the chances really for most of us that we're going to go into an event exactly the way that we want to be and so I think that like the more that we can gain acceptance that you know perfection is is maybe like a step too far then the the less we layer on to the little aches and pains and frustrations and and not perfect that um that we encounter as we get ready for a race Mm. Mm -hmm. i think that sounds very wise i say that because it's it's a good tidbit of wisdom i think for many people to hold on to so we're at mont saint anne you're there the day before your race you phoned your friend we were parked at the base of the mountain with ruby the camper van packing and repacking your gear what else were you thinking about here? What was on your mind to do in the next, say, 12 hours before you got up to start your race? It was just super busy. Uh, my dad and my sister arrived. Your parents were there. You were getting ready for your race. I was trying to decide for sure if I was going to use poles or not. I was trying to figure out what was going to go in my drop bags, what was going to go in my vest. When was I going to tape my toes? Was I going to go to your start line? Uh, What was I going to eat that night? When was I going to send an email out to the group of people that I told about the race and let them know where to follow me? And it actually just felt quite busy. And so that was what was going on for me at that point. It started to clear out a little bit for me, at least mentally, uh, when it came time for you to go to your race. That didn't necessarily mean that I got anything done uh, on that list of things that I just made, other than I guess I did decide I was going to use polls that happened pretty quickly. But I think that I just realized that I didn't necessarily have to have any of these, like all of those things totally nailed and figured out. And that there like wasn't anywhere beyond the guess that I was going to make about what I would want to eat and what I was going to need to have ready um, that I could do. Like this was sort of my first time running as the runner in a, it was long, it was, it's my first race over 50K. 
So it was really the first time that I hadn't had your support all the way until my start line. And so there was this like sort of cutting of the cord that happened when you got in the van and left and went to the start line, which actually was good because I didn't have to ask anybody else for advice about whether I was doing it right. I just had to try something and pick something. Mm. And so we left the base of Mont Saint-Anne and parted ways so I could go to my race start. And then what was your pre-race like? Like, what did you do that night and that morning to get yourself ready to go? I went to your start line, and I think that that was a good decision. I think that it sort of got me into the swing of things. There was some energy there, which was cool, and it was a good sort of distraction, I guess. It was uh, something to do instead of, like, packing and repacking and wondering about things that I was forgetting so it was nice to see that and to absorb some of that energy. After that, I came back, had a few more conversations with my dad and my sister about what they were going to do, where they were going to meet me, how this whole ultra thing works, because it was their first experience at an ultra. And then I went to bed and, uh, you know, got set for my, my four and a half hours of sleep. Tell me about that because your race started at five in the morning. Yeah, like and sleep for me can be like a thing that creates a bit of anxiety. I've I've learned a lot about sleep in the last, I guess, three or four months, honestly. And really just like a few tweaks have really helped me to think differently about sleep and, and how much I need and what it means when I don't sleep well and all of this. And so basically like... In past, I might have been really concerned that I was only going to get, you know, four, four and a half hours of sleep. And I'm not like a scientist here. I'm not an expert. And so like, I'm not going to try and use all the terms and get it all right. But I think the basic concept is that like your body gives you the core sleep that it needs eventually. You might not get it one particular night, but if you don't get it one particular night, it's probably going to pay you back with it at some point. It just is. It doesn't always feel like that, especially for, I think, people that are experiencing significant insomnia, but often your body gives it to you even if you don't perceive yourself to be getting it. And so there's something really calming about that idea for me, and that idea you know, helps me to not worry so much about whether I sleep well or not on a given night. And so I thought, you know what, four and a half hours is four and a half more hours than nothing. And so I'll take whatever I can get and it will help me during the race. And I think that like the other really important mindset thing about sleep for me is that I've really learned that when I wake up in the middle of the night and realize that I'm not asleep, one of the best things I can do is to notice that I'm not asleep and to accept that I'm not asleep rather than fight it. Because I mean, think about this, right? Like if somebody tells you, you must do something. You must do this right now. How do you feel? Do you feel very relaxed? Do you feel very interested in doing that thing? Do you feel very able to do that thing? I would hazard not very often. And so if you imagine talking to yourself about sleep in that way and saying, oh my gosh, I'm awake. How do I get back to sleep? Like, when am I going to do it? It better be right now. If I don't fall asleep, then I'm going to be awake all night and then I won't run a good race. Like that I'm activated right now. Like I feel like my, my heart rate's going up and I like feel myself getting kind of angry anxious as opposed to sort of saying, hmm, like I'm awake right now. 
And because I'm awake, I can see that there are like cracks of light coming through my window. I can see like my hand, I can hear a little bit of white noise. And then like, that's super boring. And almost by the end of noticing those things, I tend to be asleep. That doesn't always work that perfectly, but I think that just that mindset of if I wake up, that's okay. I'll notice that I'm awake and I'll bore myself back to sleep to some degree has helped me to not try so hard to fall back asleep. And so as you always do when you go to bed way earlier than usual because you're trying to grab a bit of extra sleep, I woke up about an hour into being asleep and looked at my watch and went, hmm, of course, I'm awake, and then fell back asleep within a couple of minutes and made it until 2.30 the next morning when I got up and started to get ready for the race. Mm. I think that's so, so interesting and helpful, um, especially on a night when you know you're not going to be getting as much sleep as usual and maybe there's potentially more added pressure to have a really good night's sleep so that you are ready to run your race. Using some of those mindsets and skills is really quite useful. Well, and I think I'll say too that it's like not totally hocus pocus. I mean, it it if if you're listening to me talk about this and it feels like there's maybe a bit of resistance to the idea of sort of, you know, whispering sweet nothings to yourself so that you don't worry so much about being awake at night, like that's normal. Mm-hmm. And so like I think when you're awake, having some conversations with yourself and doing a little meditation and starting to prepare yourself for the night. Um, and like doing this as a practice in your life uh, might help to reduce some of that resistance. And like that resistance is not a bad thing. It's just like perhaps a sign, like if you resist the idea of going to run hill repeats, that maybe you just are going to need to practice a little and then you get to take some joy in the practice, right? That's how we all feel about hills, right? (laughs) Joy in the practice of running hills. Absolutely. Cool. Well, take me to your start line. What was it like? What was the atmosphere like? Um, Was it bright at that point in time? When did you arrive? What were you feeling? Answer any of those questions. (laughs) My dad drove me to the start line. Uh, My sister was there with us in the car as well. Uh, The sun came up over the mountains as we drove there. It's very dramatic when that happens. We drove down into the, like through the small town and and into the kind of uh, oceanside, riverside area where the race begins. I don't know how I was feeling. How was I feeling? I was feeling like pretty calm. I was feeling... um, sort of indifferent is the word that like comes to mind. Like, well, I guess it's time to start. I, I was pleased to be starting. I was, I guess, excited to be starting because there's a lot of anticipation that builds. And at a certain point it's like, okay, like it's just more infuriating to be preparing to run this thing than actually running. So like, let's get on with it. <laughs> so I didn't feel impatient per se, but I think I just felt, um, I mean, this is more of a thought or an analysis, but I guess I just felt ready to start. Um, like whatever was going to happen was going to happen at that point. There was no more repairing that really could be done. And any error that I was that I had made in the prep was only going to start to show itself in the next like 15 to 20 hours. And so, yeah, I was I was ready for it. The, the actual start 
I had a mental picture of it uh, because I had been at your start three years ago and it was in the same spot. There were a lot of us at the start line because there were racers from the 110K, the 80K, and I think the 50K as well. I could be wrong about that, but I think I think so. And so it was a pretty huge start. And you're sort of like, I mean, I have to say, like, you're noticing, like, the different colors of drop bags. You're like, oh, geez, am I at the wrong start line? Like, there was, you know, <laughs> yellow bags and blue bags. And I was like, oh, my God, I have a blue one and I don't see any blue ones. Like, <laughs> there's only yellow ones in these people's hands. And then I saw a couple of blue ones and mm. it's just that you're a little tired and you're a little overwhelmed and you're like you know I must have done it wrong and my race has already left and yeah yeah like I, I went over I, I dropped my drop bags my drop bag I only used one drop bag because I had a crew and so I decided to use one at St. Tite de Cap and then just trust that my crew was going to get to the base of Mont Saint Anne with with anything else that I needed I lined up for the bathroom that was really like hopeful. Um, there was no chance I was making it through the bathroom line before the race <laughs> started, but I stood there for a little while and smacked a bunch of bugs and stuff like that. That's not like a saying. I literally was smacking bugs um, <laughs> because they were uh, plentiful. Mm-hmm. Then I, I gave up on the bathroom, threw on some trail toe, as you do, and got into the corral. Mm-hmm. And then the race started. And then you started. Yes. And... Uh, if I recall, the start of that race is sort of a flat out for just a little bit, and then you're right up. Pretty much. For a good, yeah. it's a 15K to that first aid station. So what do you remember from that? So I went out super slow. That was intentional. Something that I was really uh, proud of myself about was that I walked up the very like the very first incline I encountered. I didn't charge up it because I was feeling all adrenaline happy and stuff. Obviously, I didn't need to like walk up that part, but I figured, why not? There were a lot of people ahead of me, like a lot, a lot of people ahead of me. And I knew I was heading into a pretty long climb. And we had had a conversation, you and I, before the race about how it might feel like in that section that I was forever trapped because it's single track up switchbacks up a mountain side. And then it might just feel like I was never going to be able to recover from that. And I, I knew that that uh, I, in fact, could quite easily recover from that over the course of a 110-kilometer race, and so I should just chill out and, you know, have a time, however it was going to be. I ate a snack right away on the road. I just, like, pretty much as soon as we started going, I was like, I feel a little dumb. I feel a bit goofy. Somebody's going to laugh at me, but I pulled out, like, a rice snack and, and ate that before I even got to the trailhead. And I literally was hearing voices in my head, like every, and I also like perceived other runners to be like, oh, look at that guy eating already, feeling hungry. And I know, I know, I'm, it tells you something about me and my worries about things. If that was you, um, I'm glad you said it because it just confirmed my worst fears. You were, you were very smart at the beginning. And, and I think throughout the race, it sounds like you were, you know, they say eat early and often and you did that. They say don't get caught up in the rush and run too fast at the beginning, and you did that. So yeah, big yeah. kudos to you for that. I carried my poles with me. Um, I snapped them together just before I started going up the up the mountain. It was the first time that I'd ever used poles in a race, so hey, I just decided that I might as well start with them right away. And boy, was it 
like why not it's straight up the up the hill there for the first good while like hour and 30 minutes unless you're really super fast and they were handy it was great a lot of climbing you have these tiny little gaps where you cross access roads uh, but other than that you're back in the woods uh, it was nice to be back in the woods. It was quite humid, and so there was a lot of shade. Uh, it's that nice morning light kind of coming through. I had it in my head. I had the elevation for that section kind of in my brain, and I had an intention once I kind of got to the part that was a bit of a descent to stow my poles, but I didn't. Um, I got used to kind of holding them and carrying them. Got to the top of the climb, and I was feeling pretty good. I was annoyed that it was that difficult to hike because I was like, I go on hikes all the time. Why is it difficult? Like hikes aren't difficult, but like, I guess hikes are difficult when you're trying to keep moving at a reasonably like good pace. And so I, I got to the top of that one, felt fine. And then, uh, I think ran reasonably quickly down some of those runnable downs at the top of that section and then came into that aid station feeling pretty fresh overall. I uh, I listened to the first of the voice recordings that I had on my phone from the group of people I'd asked uh, for messages from. And what I did with this group is I asked them to submit uh, short voice messages for me to listen to while I was out on the trail. And I asked them to consider a question and we'll see if I can actually phrase the question the way I did when I asked them. But essentially I asked, um, when you're doing difficult or challenging things, how do you practice self-compassion? And uh, my theory was that the more self-compassionate I could be in this race, the more likely I was going to be to achieve the goals that I had, feel satisfied. And actually similar to the way I was trying to work with my body pre-race, I felt like it was likely that I would clench up less around the experience mentally and physically, and that that would help me to run a better race. It gave me this big like ear to ear grin and um, <laughs> was a real nice lift. And um, it was interesting because I hadn't like thought to listen to it until like pretty far into the first 10K. And so that was kind of a bonus that like I hadn't needed it until then. So it was nice to to have it when I when I got it. And yeah, I ran into the first aid station at Massive feeling good and not feeling like I wanted to stop for very long. I saw my dad and my sister there, filled up my water. Um, there were a ton of people at that aid station. I think this is like something that is like good to keep in mind if you're doing one of the distances that I mentioned. Like you're coming into these aid stations, unless again, unless you're like leading the pack out, you're coming in to them when they're very full. Um, so you may have to wait for a second or two for water. Like you might have to go through a tiny bit of a line to grab your watermelon slices. And I found them to be like slightly less community oriented because there were just so many people there and like you couldn't really have, it didn't really feel like that you were going to have much of a chat with anybody because everyone was just kind of milling around and it was a bit of, um, organized chaos, I would say. Grabbed a few more snacks ate a bunch of watermelon. I'm really into cold club soda. That's what I crave when I'm out there on the run. I just want to drink cold things. And so my dad had a can of that for me and I chugged that down and bubbles and all. Uh, felt great. No problem there. And, uh, and then carried on. 
And so you mentioned snacks. What were your favorite snacks on this one? What were you excited to be eating? Excited feels like a really big word. I'm not sure that I was excited to eat anything, to be honest with you. Like I really, the club soda was exciting. Watermelon was exciting. I, I had a bunch of fruit. That was something I wanted to experiment with this race. I liked eating oranges. I liked eating grapes. Um, it's kind of fresh things that seem to be high in water content seem thing like things I wanted. I liked fruit to go bars. I found those like possible and palatable at every stage of the race. So that was nice. I really didn't want like cliff bars or anything that was kind of more like, I don't know, like a traditional bar. I ate a couple, but I, they were sort of sawdusty. It was my experience of them. Um, Shout out to Cliff. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would say those were the main things that I wanted yeah. during the run. Did you try any of the cheese curds at the uh, aid stations? I did. I did. And I was quite pleased to eat those. I didn't yeah. eat many cheese curds until later in the run. Like I think down more like in Mestashibo. That was probably when I first started eating cheese curds. After you left Massif, there were two aid stations in between when you were going to see Bruce and Lindsay, your dad and your sister again. Um, walk us through those. The next section, I guess, to, was to Cap de Salou. Yeah, that section, I had it in my head that it was less elevation, and it certainly was, than the first section. And so I thought, you know, like this is a chance to to run a bit more. And so I did. And I felt like that was a pretty good section for me. You were moving fast on that section. I think when we look back at your splits, you were, I think that was your fastest split through there. Yeah. So it's not, that doesn't surprise me. I, I ran some of the downs really fast there. And I, I think like, it's a weird thing because, because I think you're quite aware that you don't want to run faster than what is sustainable but running it down really fast probably felt sustainable to me. And the downs in that section, I think I really ran them pretty, pretty hard. And I, I, I remember this one particular down that was sort of more access road esque and, and yeah, I just sort of channeled my inner Kelsey Hogan and flew down it as fast as I could. I was thinking about running down marble mountain um, in Steadybrook, Newfoundland and, and thinking about what it was like to run down uh, those access roads pretty fast or those ski runs really fast. So <laughs> that was a good section for me. I felt pretty great about that. I listened to another voice message in there too, and that was great. And yeah, and then I made it into Captain Salou. Not much. I don't think I did much there. Like I didn't uh, refill my water. I made a decision that I could get to Greben without refilling. How much water were you carrying? I was carrying two liters. And then I also was carrying a 500 mil bottle of fur tea with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what every good ultra runner does. I save the needles from our Christmas tree and I brew tea all the way through the year with the needles. <laughs> and I love it. It tastes really, really good. And I didn't drink it a lot. I drank it a few times, but it was just nice to have it. I mean, it smells really good if you like accidentally go over a um, a big bump and you squirt yourself in the face with it, which I did do. And I think like if I remembered that I had it more often, I might have gone to it and drank more of it. But yeah, I was carrying mostly two liters of water. That was a last minute addition. You were very excited I about was. though. Yes. Yeah. I must not have... 
I, I I ate something at that aid station again, probably more of the like the watermelon and orange variety than than anything super big. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, set off to Capri uh, Ben. That section kicked my ass. I I don't remember like a lot about it, but I just know that like it was harder than I expected it to be. Maybe I was really excited that in like the first. 30k of my run is that right about 30k of my run I didn't really look at my watch Mm -hmm. like I didn't really have an awareness of how far I'd gone and and I was just kind of like you know running the trails having a time and then suddenly there was an aid station and I felt like that would be an amazing way to run my entire race it 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 is not the case that that's an amazing way to run your entire race because at least in my case in this section from Cap de Salut to Cap Gruban I was just I just kept going when is the aid station coming when is the aid station coming and I could have like looked at my chart and gone it's in this amount of time and this amount of distance and you've gone this far and really kind of just like given myself a goal but I didn't. I was kind of stubborn. And so it just kept taking longer and longer and longer than I expected it to take to get to it. And that was, I think, more mental work than I needed to do. It wasn't like completely demoralizing, but it also wasn't super supportive to take that approach. I remember those two aid stations, Cap du Salut and Cap Gruben, were sort of tucked into the woods. And you weren't going to see your crew until uh, the one following that St. Teeth to Cap. So what were you thinking as you were leaving those and knowing you were going to see your sister and your dad again? Um, Like, I feel like you're setting me up to be like, <laughs> yeah. oh, wow, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to see them. And I was looking forward to see them, seeing them for sure. But it honestly wasn't like the biggest motivator in the entire world. It was exciting for sure. It was exciting because I would see them because it was sort of a marker of, of how far I had gone in the race and at what stage I was at in the race. So that was, I knew running towards St. Tite de Cap was a significant thing. I also knew that aid station a little bit because I'd been there with you previously. And so it was nice to be running towards a bit of a known. And yeah, I mean, I was feeling capable of finishing the race at that point. And so when I left Gruben, I felt a bit weird, honestly, a bit funny, like a little, I don't want to say woozy, but I felt a little maybe like not totally myself. But yeah, so I don't know. What am I trying to say? Like the 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 departure from Gruben to St. Tite Cap was sort of like, unceremonious I left and I thought I just got to keep going mm-hmm. um and I wasn't being pulled in by St. Tite de Cap um yet mm-hmm. and that section ended up being quite difficult I think I met um what was I calling it at the time like uh oh my god the, the like the d- dark pit of despair or something <laughs> oh, yeah in that in that section on a couple of ups I stopped at one point and let a bunch of people go by and just stood there and felt like a little faint and had like a snack. And um, I'm sure this person was really trying to like be nice in some sort of way, but somebody ran past me and and went, well, guess the real race starts now. And again, (laughs) if that was you, good on you. And I'm sure it was meant in an encouraging way, but 
it sort of made me roll my eyes at the time. <laughs> but yeah, I ate my snack and I kept going and I was feeling... Um, I keep using the word feeling and it's really not feeling. I was thinking a lot of things. I had a lot of conversations with anxiety in that section. Mm. And I noticed that anxiety started to appear rather regularly as I went up hills. And really it wasn't super helpful for anxiety to show up when I was going up hills because I kind of needed all of my feelings and all of my parts to be working to get me up those hills and so I had like quite a detailed conversation with anxiety where I kind of just you know thanked it for being there and asked it what it was interested in communicating with me what wisdom it had to share with me and we worked our way from uh, the wisdom I have to share with you is that you should stop doing these hills right now because they really suck to maybe we could make a deal to work together to get to the top of these hills because we both really like the feeling of being done with the hills. And if we mm. can get done with a lot of hills, we'll get to celebrate being done together quite a lot. And so I don't want to say that I like totally converted myself into a lover of hills with the support of anxiety along the way, but I did notice throughout the race after I had that conversation that anxiety started to show up and say, you can do it, like uh, almost encouraging me. And I remember saying in my head at one point, like, I'm surprised that you're encouraging me. And this voice in my head replied with, um, well, I figure I might as well do something productive. And so if this sounds completely wacky to be having this conversation with like your feelings or with parts of yourself, it is, but also I think it's not. And I think it was really special to be in an environment where there were really no distractions between me and the responses from parts of my body and parts of my mind and parts of my system. I could actually hear what they were saying because they didn't have anything else cluttering up the cluttering up the works, cluttering up the communication. So when I asked a question and just trusted the first thing that I heard back, I found it to be quite clear and quite easy to listen to what was being said back to me. Mm. I also, I think I hear you saying too, you didn't try and like shove anxiety away or ignore it and pretend it wasn't there. There's a lot of acceptance in the way you express that conversation you had with anxiety. Yes. And that was a choice. I think that choice was really made when I decided that I was going to try and run a self-compassionate race. And I think that my own answer to what self-compassion meant was that I needed to allow all parts of myself to exist, to not try to push any of them away, to trust that they all were trying to do something to help me. And that by at least welcoming them in for a time, I would be able to put myself in a better position to achieve the goal that I had set out for myself. And I think my thought was like, if I, if I don't push this thing away, whether it was anxiety or even a positive thing like excitement or joy or, or pride or whatever, then, then I guess I'm, I'm now like splitting my thought in half here, like on the negative side, uh, or something I might perceive to be negative, 
if I if I can let it exist for a while, I won't expend expend my energy trying to push it out the door. And maybe I'll actually discover that there's something redeeming about its presence um, that can help me, which I think really was the case with anxiety. And then with some of these more like positively valenced ideas, like, you know, or emotions like joy or something like that, it's like maybe the longer I can steep in it, the better uh, it can fuel me and energize me. There is, I think, a dark side to that one, though, in that, like, I suppose if you, like, fuel yourself on joy to the um, expense of excluding other feelings from the party, then you may push yourself beyond a limit that you should pay attention to. That was just kind of the way I was thinking about running the race. Mm. Well, how did you arrive to St. Tite de Cap then? So... A cool thing before St. Tita Cap is there's like a little parking lot area you come out in. There's like a road that leads you towards that aid station. And when you come out of that area on your right-hand side, there is a spring water hose. Um, And I wouldn't have known about that or trusted that necessarily if it hadn't been for one of the guys that I'd been running with calling out to me and saying it's spring water and, and you know he spoke French and he kind of knew the area and so I trusted him and I just went over and had like four cups or five cups of this really cold nice fresh water that was coming out of there and we stood there together and drank our water and then trotted wow. on down the road so that's nice that's a that's a I mean I have not experienced any negative symptoms from drinking that water so um all signs point to it having truly been spring water and safe to drink. So hopefully that's there for anybody that runs it in the future. From there on, I trotted into St. Tite de Cap. Something that came into my mind as we were, as I was running that section and kind of getting through the difficult things was slow and steady trotting got me from aid station to aid station with you when we ran our race at Lake Tahoe. And so I just thought about slow and steady trot slow and steady trot. Anyway, back to the point, I headed into St. Tita Cap, as everybody does through a a culvert. Uh, Just before I got to the culvert, I saw my dad and my sister over on on the hill and gave them a wave and that was good. And I was trying to, I was sort of like, I'd worked through the darkness, I think, by that point, by the time I was coming in. And I, I felt like, well, you know, I'm going to take a longer stop at this aid station. I'd made that decision. I felt like I could use it. I knew I needed to eat. And I had a plan to change my shoes and to resupply on snacks because I'd basically run out. I was feeling like pretty neutral about how I was doing. I felt okay. I knew I was sort of on pace. I was within the window that I expected I'd be running the race in. And yeah, I went through that culvert and whacked my knee off of a rock because why else? What else would you do? That was all fine. I came out of the culvert, went into the aid station ate a bunch of watermelon, refilled the water, changed my shoes there, drank some more club soda and headed out again. I recorded a couple of little messages there at that, at that aid station, one to, to you. Uh, I, I was excited to hear how your race was going at that point. I, I had known before I started that you were out there pretty quick and I had a pretty good sense that I didn't have to worry too much about how your race was going to go before I started, but it was nice to hear that you kept it up at that point. Yeah. And then I recorded a message to my, to my cousin who had sent me one of the voice messages I'd listened to on the, on the trail and, and then off I went. And 
from St. Teeth to Cap. It was a very runnable section. It was a really nice sort of downhill, followed the side of the road, um, started with a little bit of an up, but other than that, it was a lot of downs and flats. So how did you feel on that? I felt great on that. I walked out of the aid station. I did some more eating. Yeah. And then, and then I just kept on that slow and steady trotting. I ran pretty much that whole section until, until I reached like the very steep down section that happens just before you cross a river. But yeah, I mean, that felt great to be able to run for that length of time. Um, and I had, I felt pretty good about put, putting in some like seven minute kilometers at that point. Like that was felt pretty fast. And then, so there's a super steep section on the sort of tail end of this part of trail and it's on the tail end just before you get to a river crossing. And I knew that I was supposed to take it pretty slow and just get myself down in one piece. And, uh, I did, um, and I still fell off the cliff slightly. I, don't want to overstate how far I would have fallen if I hadn't been able to like kind of break my fall by grabbing onto various things, but it would have been a little way. And so I remember thinking, huh, that was dumb, but I didn't feel any worse for where I like, actually, I remember checking my various, you know, internal organs and stuff and going, yeah, it seems fine and everything works and all is good. So then I carried on down into the river Valley met up with like the very energetic uh, river crossing volunteers. They um, threw a life jacket on me. I got in these two little boats that uh, float you across the river. You got in two little boats. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. One leg in each. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sat in one of the boats and uh, enjoyed a nice little rest, got to the mm. other side. And the guy there said, uh, it's a kilometer and a half to the next aid station. And I said, it's music to my ears. Little did I know there were lots of big stairs inside of that kilometer and a half. So that kilometer and a half actually took a little more time than I had sort of anticipated it taking. Um, so I'll be ready for that if I do it again. Got to the Mestashibo aid station, feeling really good about my chances of finishing the race. On my way into that aid station, I noticed that I had to pee. And that was very exciting for me because I don't usually pee when I'm on the on the trail. That may mean that I'm not drinking enough water. I think we can also like... I interrogate that, but it's just not a super regular thing for me to do. And so I was kind of excited. I was like getting ready to like, um, I wasn't going to take a video, but I was going to be like excited to tell Kelsey that I had <laughs> taken a trail pee. Like finally. Yeah, exactly. Because usually when we train together, Kelsey's like darting off all over the place. And I'm like, I'll just wait till we get back. Got into the aid station, had a nice chat with some of the volunteers, refilled my water, um, grabbed some cheese curds, ate some cheese curds, ate a bunch of watermelon, had a bit of, uh, orange, I think ate some like Nutella in a wrap, that kind of thing. And then looked around for a bathroom. There wasn't one. So I thought, well, I'll just wait uh, until like, it's not urgent. I'll just like run a little bit further and then I'll pull off to the side of the trail and, and that'll be great. So I went out another couple of K, maybe three kilometers and pulled off to, to take a pee and, I did, and uh, it wasn't the color it was supposed to be. It was uh, more red than usual. Not brown, not brown, but red. And that was concerning. It was very concerning. I didn't really know what that meant. I had 
had like a sort of flippant conversation with my dad before the race about what my kind of limit was for pushing myself. And mm. I had sort of said like, I guess I don't really want to be doing things like peeing blood or like oh, doing no. any sort of irreparable harm to my body or any injuries that last beyond a couple of years of recovery or anything like that. And, and I didn't really think much of it. And then, and then, uh, so when that happened, that conversation was sort of playing back in my mind instantly. And it rattled me very, very quickly and my pace slowed right down and and I started thinking a lot. I was trying to parse through like kind of what to do, what was happening. I started like running through like a check of how I was feeling like, mm. like medically health wise. And so I, I think I, I let a couple of people go by. I didn't turn around and go back to the aid station. I decided to like keep going for a bit while I figured out what was going on. Uh, cause it honestly, at that point in the race, like turning around and going three kilometers back felt like a really big ask and, mm-hmm. you know, going the remaining distance to Mont St. Anne felt like not much different than doing three kilometers straight back, even though it was a big difference. And so I carried on very slowly and, uh, in the middle of one of the climbs, I started to feel like a real sense of, of, well, it was either panic or it was medical distress and I wasn't super sure which one it was. And so I had another one of those like deep conversations with things going on in my body. And I ended up like kind of locking on to talking with panic. And I think like that was the first decision was to talk to panic rather than talk to medical distress or whatever that other concern was. And so I had a real challenging conversation with that part of me where it didn't really want to like reveal a whole lot of information to me. And I had trouble phrasing my questions in a way that wasn't antagonistic. And so I really worked at that to say, again, in the same way I did with anxiety, like, you know, I appreciate that you're here. I'm not sure that I understand why. And I'm wondering if you can help me to understand what you have to tell me right now. And, and I, I ended up asking it, like, am I in medical distress? And, and like the answer back at that point was yes. And mm-hmm. I really had to like, keep asking questions to start to like, loosen the answer there. And ultimately, the answer sort of became like, yes, but not imminent medical distress. And like, you're okay. And I trusted that. Like I knew when I heard that, that I could trust it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was sort of a grudging admission that there was like nothing immediately dangerous happening to me. And it was just so interesting because I swear to you that I felt like a slight pain in my kidney at one point. And it just went away once I had the conversation with panic. And it was just so interesting because I knew the connection between kidneys and blood and urine and stuff and so Mm. like I totally manifested in the end that little pain in my side and so just so interesting as I talked with panic that it like went away so anyway I carried on again energy level was way low at that point um I didn't really want to drink either because it just felt like I needed to pee all the time and and like needing to pee all the time meant I was going to see more blood and who was going to want to see that and so anyway, carried on and I encountered a like a medic runner, which was really nice. But being me, I said nothing. You know, they said ça va and I said ça va bien. And <laughs> I'm in my head, him. right? 
And so then I carried on and, and again, going pretty slow, taking little breaks and then saw another medic runner. And I said, I'm doing well. As soon as that person went by, I started to remember this like scene from the West wing. And it's a scene where they like refer to, uh, uh, like kind of like a allegory, a Christian allegory about like a guy who's, who arrives at the pearly gates and, um, is kind of frustrated that God didn't save him from drown drowning. And he says, why didn't you save me from drowning? And God says, well, like, um, I sent you a rowboat and a helicopter and a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, why are you frustrated with me? And I started to think that perhaps like medic runner one, medic runner two were like the rowboat and the helicopter. And I better get my shit together and tell somebody the next time that I saw someone or else I might end up at the pearly gates frustrated at the wrong person. <laughs> uh, so I resolved that the next time I saw a medic runner, if I did, I would say something and I would ask for some advice, knowing that that like probably was going to do my race in at that point. So I came across somebody about two kilometers later, a guy named Alex down in the Mestishibo River Valley, built a fire. And again, he said, you know, ça va. And I said, ça va bien. I kept going. And I went like 200 meters further. And then I went, you're an idiot. And then I turned around and went back, talked to him and, and, and shared what was going on. He, he radioed back and got in contact with a doctor who gave him some advice about things to do, like to kind of test my, my kidneys and also my story. Like, you know, had mm -hmm. I been drinking like fluids, had I taken any uh, anti-inflammatories, had I uh, been eating and they're looking for evidence of, I think like a uh, connection between like kidney failure or any sort of internal damage from a fall and the blood that I was seeing. And uh, he did a kidney punch and he, he said, you got to be real honest with me. And quite honestly, I was able to say there's no pain that is coming from this. And the moral of the story was that uh, they said, you know, you're good to carry on. And I had Googled it by this point too. Like I Googled, <laughs> what does this mean for ultra marathon runners? And, and actually in the case of Google being calming, something had come up and said, uh, there's this thing called runner's bladder that's fairly common. I didn't read anything about it, but it, the word benign jumped out at me. And I thought, no, that's good. Benign is good. Benign <laughs> yeah. is what we like. Latch on to that word. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, I think Alex was more invested in me getting to Mont St. Anne than I was at that point. And so he said, well, you can carry on to Mont St. Anne. You just like when you get there, you should ask for this doctor and she'll see you and uh, give you some more advice about what to do. And um, honestly, the idea of continue, he's, he said this thing like, oh, it's really close, you know, Mont St. Anne. And I'm like, and he's like, it's like eight or nine K from here. And I'm like, that doesn't seem super close now. Like I'm moving at like three kilometers an hour at the moment, you know, on one of the hardest sections of the entire trail yeah, I think, should yeah. be noted. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I just kind of thought, well, you know, it's sort of poetic to get to 80 kilometers. That's where Kelsey stopped her race three years ago. And uh, it's a, I knew that it was like a sort of, you know, big aid station. It was sort of, it's sort of this, the, the, the heart of the running festival. And I thought that it would be a fitting spot to at least get that far. And in that remaining eight, nine kilometers, I had lots of conversations with myself. I really wanted to check in with the parts of me that wanted to stop and the parts that wanted to keep going. The parts that wanted to stop, like those are pretty developed parts of me. Um, like like I think the, the responsible parts that know that it's okay to stop something, that it's like okay to adjust your mindset, it's okay to change your goals. 
that like you don't need to necessarily push yourself beyond what seems comfortable or safe. I think those are pretty well-developed parts that have served me pretty well in my life. And so like, interestingly for me, the part that I wanted to get to know more was the part that wanted to keep going. And it's interesting because I think like talking to a couple other people about what they imagined I might've been thinking about, they maybe were wondering more about like whether I would be hard-headed and just want to continue for, for, you know, the sake of it because I had to. And, and quite honestly, I was more concerned that I was going to drop before I needed to rather than that I was going to like push myself beyond what was safe. And so the, the like more intense conversation was with the parts of me that wanted to keep going. And honestly, I didn't, I don't think I got super deep into that conversation with that, with those parts. And I'd like to probably get to know them a little better because yeah, because they just weren't quite as as readily able to offer up wisdom. And I wasn't quite as able to ask questions of them as, again, the parts that were a bit more used to being asked questions of. But yeah, I, I had mostly like come up with a bit of like a left brain logical pros and cons list of stopping and continuing. And, and I had pretty well come to a decision that I was going to stop at 80 kilometers. And I wasn't like totally sure about that, but I was pretty sure. And where the decision ended up locking in was towards the end of that section, which as you mentioned, is very, very rocky and there are lots of stairs and it's not very runnable. Towards the end of that section, there is a very lovely waterfall and it's a very lovely waterfall as long as you don't look next to it and notice the very, very many stairs that go pretty well straight up for a long way, like further than you can see. And you go, oh, it's time for me to climb these now, isn't it? And so as I climbed those stairs, I listened to a voice memo from one of the people that had sent me one of these uh, self-compassion reflections. And in that reflection, it invited me to consider the possibility that I would find love and intimacy and belief and support and kindness if I needed to drop. And it was like literally the last, one of the last words in the message was the words, like, if you need to stop. And I, at that point, I got that like right brain shiver down my spine that sort of, and then the tears in my eyes that, that made me feel like, okay, if I bring, that was like the linchpin, it's like, I can bring that. And just like the, the, the sheer chance of it that I would have sequenced my listening to these memos in this order that I would find this one at this particular time. And that sort of brought it all together and made me feel like, okay, I've decided now I know what's, what's going to happen. And so like the last bit of my race ended up being like, uh, I still ran like a bit of a fast down on one of the kind of access road parts, just cause I thought I can, so I will. And then right towards the end, I, I, I spied my dad and my sister coming towards me on the trail. And strictly speaking, that wouldn't have been allowed. I think it was okay under the circumstances. Yes. Um, and they had come in because they were a little worried about me. And, and I had called them from down in the valley just to kind of prepare them for the decision I was going to be making when I came into the aid station. And I think it probably made them more anxious than I, <laughs> than I had thought it might. Um, you'd have to ask them, but, uh, they had decided to come in a little ways just to offer some support. And so they, they just happened to be out for a trail run and find themselves on the course. And, and, uh, they walked in a little ways with me and then peeled back off. And I ran the last little bit into the aid station 
and then saw a volunteer there and said, I'm going to drop. And then he went and found a, another volunteer, I guess, to confirm that with who came over to me and said, you know, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And I said, yes, yes, yes. And, um, I'm peeing blood. And he said, good idea. You should stop. Um, or good decision. He didn't even say you should stop. He just said good decision. And, and, uh, so then I went and got some medical attention and there you go. That was my race. Thank you. That's a great reflection. It's a lot in 80 kilometers. Yeah. So you did 80 of 110 that you'd planned? I did. I did. And, and one of the, one of the consequences of stopping at 80 is that like something pretty special didn't happen. And, and that is that I didn't get a chance to run the last 30 up the mountain and to the finish line with my dad. And I know that that's something that would have been very special for the two of us to do. Um, it he was, was going to pace you for that section. He was. You know, we had an experience that was special in other ways. But I think that certainly there's like a sense of of something a little bit undone, not having done that. To be honest with you, I didn't feel that immediately. I knew it was a good decision. Like I felt really satisfied with my race when I came in, really comfortable with the choice I'd made to stop. And really, if I'm being truthful, like was sort of thinking, well, at least he doesn't have to run 30K anymore uh, because I think that was going to be a bit of a push for him and, and a bit uncomfortable for him. But after the fact, reflecting with him and, and hearing about his disappointment about not having the opportunity to share that time together, I think I do notice a bit of the sense of, you know, sadness and disappointment that exists there about not having had the chance to have that particular experience. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing your experiences and reflections and thoughts and feelings on the run. I think before we finish off, we're a few days out now from having returned home and into our recovery. And so I'm curious how you're feeling about your running now. How do you feel about your decision to stop? And uh, do you think that you might do it again? I'm going to start in the middle. The decision to stop, I feel good about. Um, it's difficult not to reevaluate that decision with the information I have now. The information I have now is essentially that I was dehydrated. Um, my bladder was totally empty, so it was bouncing around inside off of my bones and things like that. You can look up which bones those will be. Um, and it was getting bruised or maybe having some small contusions on it, and so that's where the blood comes from. So essentially what happens is like, again, not a doctor, but I think essentially when you reinflate your bladder, you provide a bit of cushioning and it doesn't bounce around quite as much. And so essentially what happened for me is like about six hours after the race, everything else, like I dread drank a ton of water and electrolytes and all sorts of stuff and uh, everything cleared up within about six hours. So it wasn't um, something that really stuck with me for too long. In terms of the first part, like how am I feeling about my running? I think the question about how I feel about my running is probably like too soon to answer in any sort of definitive way. I feel at this moment sort of intrigued by continuing to run. Um, I think I'm intrigued partially because I feel like there's a bit of a sunk cost and I want to like kind of keep 
uh, my fitness level up there uh, because I've put some time in it, into it and some energy and it would sort of be a shame to like regress and lose all that progress. So I'm not sure that's like a super motivating mindset to carry for very long, but I think that's fine to take some energy from it for now. I think I also feel like, and this is maybe more of a thought than a feeling, um, the th uh, there's a thought I have that it's important for me to take some time to not really think too much about running and to engage in some of the things I haven't been doing since I've been focusing more on running. I like to play some golf. Um, I'd like to write a few more songs. I'd like to um, sink into a few projects at work, those kind of things. Um, and really just like, kind of like broaden my gaze and, uh, see what's there. And it feels like ultimately that will serve my running well as, uh, as, as well. As far as like doing it again, there's certainly like a pull to do it again because I didn't achieve the, a goal or even the B goal or the C goal that was, that were associated with, completing the race to the 109.5 kilometer mark. So that's there for sure. I also think that like one of my main reflections is that like, I really enjoy uh, supporting the running that others do in particular, the running that you do. And so there's like a real, uh, there's almost like a sense of loss at not having been uh, part of your race and that was a function of me running my own race at the same time. So I'm going to think about that and what that means. And I have to say that, like, I don't think I left this race feeling, I certainly didn't leave this race feeling like, oh, top of the podium is within my reach. And I suppose it could be if I really put myself to it and really dedicated myself to it. I'm not sure that I really want to. But that's a little hard to say because I don't really like giving up any possibility. I think this like feeling that I might be able to sort of accidentally show up and, and come really high in a race. I think that like notion is mostly dissipated and gone away. And so like what remains then is like a, uh, a bit more of like a decision about what is the role that I want running to play in my life and, and how, significant do I want ultra training to be in the mix of things that I do any final reflections thoughts feelings I can't imagine that there would be anything left <laughs> you left it all on the trail yeah <laughs> something like that well thank you Adam it was great to chat with you and to uh hear about your race experience I I was thinking about you a lot while I was out on the trail. And so to hear a bit about your experience out there and your thoughts and feelings is pretty cool. Thanks for sharing them. Thanks for listening to Trail Emotion. If you want to keep up with what happens on this podcast, make sure to click follow on your pod catcher of choice. And in time, there will be more episodes. We promise. You can also follow along on Instagram at at Kelsey Pamela, K-E-L-S-E-Y, or at Adam Fernell, F-E-A-R-N-A-L-L. -L. All right. Happy trails. Happy life. Talk to you later.